Jonah chapter 3. This is the word of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Let's pause there and pray. Father, now as we turn to your word, we once again want to recognize our desperate need for you. Lord, your word says that the things of God are discerned by the Spirit. And no one can understand the things of God except by the Holy Spirit. And so we want to one more time invite that precious third member of the Trinity to be here with us as we study what you have to say to us. Lord, as you re-speak to us through your word, let us be men, women, boys, and girls who listen, hear, and do what you command us. Help us to remember that we can do nothing apart from your grace in Jesus, though. And so I pray that we would be both challenged and comforted by your word. Be present now with us as we study. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Well, perhaps the following story... Actually, let me back up. Let me give you a title if you're taking notes. If you're taking notes... The title of this sermon is God's Imperfect Faithful Servant. God's Imperfect Faithful Servant. Now, perhaps this will resonate with some of you, this following story. The appliance repairman, John, arrived at the house and got right to work. After he was finished, uh, Tim, the man who lived there, chatted with him for a few minutes. So, John, tell me about yourself. Do you live in the area? Oh yeah, we moved here not long ago, a few months ago. Uh, What brought you to the area? Oh, well, this job brought me to the area and the the school system is good here, so uh, we we, we decided to move here. Oh, great, how many kids do you have? Well, we have, you know, three kids and uh, they're these ages. And the conversation went on. And in the conversation, John went from more light, surfacey type of conversation to a little deeper talk. He said, yeah, but things have been pretty difficult at home. Uh, my kids, one of my, one of my middle child has been suffering with this repeated season of sickness. My mom has stage four cancer. This job has been re- really hard for me, getting used to it, getting used to the hours, and it doesn't quite bring in the money that I thought it would. And so Tim said, I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry, John, to hear to hear this. Do, do you attend church anywhere? And so John said, well, yeah, I, I, we visited the Baptist church down the street, and we went a couple of times. We liked it, but, you know, I really haven't gone that much. Well, John, what do you see God in all of this? Tim asked. How do you think he sees your circumstances? 
John says, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I pray sometimes. Sometimes I, I read the Bible, but I, you know, I really need to get back to church. I really need to start reading the Bible some more. And so Tim very lovingly said, you know, John, Jesus didn't come for people who attend church and read the Bible. Jesus didn't come for people who have everything together. Jesus came for the needy. He came, he came for the sick. He came for those who can't save themselves. He came for those who feel helpless, who are helpless. And so John and Tim chatted a bit more, and, and, and John thanked Tim for what he said. Yeah, I, I appreciate what you said. And so, so Tim, not knowing what else to say, said, well, John, can I pray for you before you leave? And he said, sure, I'd love that. And they prayed together, and, and John left. Afterward, Tim began to think about how he talked with John. He began to question some of the things he said. He began to wonder why he said that particular phrase and why he didn't talk about this more. Why was this so unclear? Why wasn't I more clear about this? Why didn't I talk about, for example, the problem of sin? Why did I stutter with this man? Why was there such gravel in my mouth? Why didn't I look him in the eye when we were talking? Well, I was nervous. That's why I didn't look him in the eye. Friends, can any of us relate with this particular experience? Well, I have to confess, uh, this is actually a personal story from my own experience. Living in Western North Carolina, I just changed the names to protect the innocent. And quite frankly, many of my evangelistic conversations happen a lot like that one. So many times I can't tell you, I've left a conversation frustrated, frustrated I wasn't more clear with the gospel, feeling condemned that I shared about Jesus out of duty because I knew that I had to, not really out of love for this person or feeling like I had to, not out of love for this person, not out of this, my love for God. And most often I leave conversations feeling guilty for not sharing about him at all. And yet, friends, we know, don't we? We know that this is what Jesus has called us to do. The last thing Jesus left with his disciples is go into the world and make disciples of, of every nation. We know this is what a disciple of Jesus is called to do, is to evangelize his or her neighbor. Paul, the Apostle Paul said to Timothy, Timothy, I, I want you to do the work of an evangelist. I think, I think Paul said that to Timothy because he knew Timothy wasn't really like a gifted evangelist. So he said, Timothy, doesn't, that doesn't matter. Do the work of an evangelist. Work hard to be an evangelist in your daily life. The reason why God saves us, friends, the reason why God saves men and women and boys and girls is so that we would be signposts. People who draw attention to the, the great work of salvation that God is accomplishing in Jesus through the Gospel. Evangelism is foundational to, to Christianity. If you bleed, if you cut a Christian, they should bleed. Evangelism. Yet if we're honest, so often we feel as though we let the Lord down with this particular area of our lives. Not only do we not regularly share the gospel out of our love for the Lord, and out of our love for our neighbor, our lives tend to, to fall short in reflecting His glory to a watching world. 
Most people wouldn't even know I was a Christian unless I, I told them. Friends, if this describes you, if this resonates with you today, I think the Lord wants to both encourage you and to challenge you with this text. Jonah is a great guy for us to study. Because just as we so often feel unfaithful, Jonah was a man who was unfaithful. And yet, the Lord restores him. And yet, the Lord gives him a second chance. And yet, the Lord sends him out again. And in this man, we see the marks of a faithful servant. Not a perfect servant, but a faithful servant. This story shows us that the Lord loves to restore his unfaithful servants so that they might return to the, the calling that he's called them to and go and be his signposts to a watching world again. So looking at chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, what do we see here? What, what are the characteristics of this imperfect but faithful servant? Now this passage is mainly about Jonah's call to be an evangelist, and so we want to apply it in that way to our own lives, but you can apply this to any particular calling that God has called you to. Maybe it's in your calling to serve the church in a certain way. Maybe it's in your calling to be patient over a long season with a difficult person that God has put into your life. Maybe it's your calling to work at a job you really don't like, but that you're kind of stuck there, and that's where God has you. Right now, you can apply it in so many parts of your life will focus mainly on evangelism. All right, so looking at Jonah's life, what are the characteristics of the imperfect but faithful servant? Number one, I'm going to give you three. Number one, the faithful servant has been humbled. If you're new to Christianity, by the way, perhaps it would be helpful for me to define what I mean when I say evangelism. Evangelism. I found this definition from Max Stiles' book, Evangelism, uh, to be helpful, so we'll put it up on the screen for you. Evangelism, real simply, evangelism is teaching or heralding the gospel, that is the message from God that leads to salvation, with the aim to persuade. Evangelism is teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. Now, evangelism is not saying the sinner's prayer with someone. Evangelism is not sharing your testimony. Evangelism is not walking the aisle up to an altar call. Now these things can include evangelism, and they should include evangelism, but just because these things have happened doesn't necessarily mean that evangelism has taken place. For evangelism to actually happen, the truth about God and His plan to save sinners through Jesus must be conveyed with the goal of persuading that person to trust Christ, obviously relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't change a single heart. Just breathe. Just relax. You can't change a single heart. But we can speak. And that's the only task God has given to us. Relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. All right. So beginning in chapter 3, Jonah, our friend, my man, is a new man. He's a different man compared to the man that we saw starting in 
chapter 1. And going through the belly of a fish probably has that effect on an individual. In chapter 1, we saw there that when the, the Lord told Jonah to go to Nineveh, what did he do? He arose and he went to Joppa with the goal of going to Tarshish, the other end of the world. Then, of course, Jonah experienced tremendous hardship for sinfully disobeying the word of the Lord. So by now, we well understand that when God selects a man or a woman for a task, the only appropriate response is obedience. And God will not be manipulated or coerced by our own disobedience. Get that. So what does God do? God, in Jonah's case, showed him that obedience, that submission to God's word, is always preferable to judgment. And he did so by disciplining Jonah, by sending him through the school of affliction and adversity. Jonah emerges from the fish on the sand, covered in vomit, as a very small man. But a man who is finally willing and ready to submit to the word. We see there in in verse 3 that Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now the story of Jonah is surprising to me, and I'll share why. Jonah, take note, doesn't rise in chapter 3 to go to Nineveh, now watch this, out of deep love for his neighbors. In fact, we're going to see before we're done with the book that Jonah has a particular hatred for his neighbors and that God has yet a lot of work to do in his chosen servant. But for now, Jonah's obedience is rooted not in a love for the lost, not even in his calling as God's messenger, God's prophet, God's servant, no, but in the word of the Lord being impressed upon his rebel heart. And the reason that Jonah can now hear and obey is because God has sovereignly used his foolish flight to severely discipline him and to unstop his deaf ears and to restore him to his calling. Now the word of the Lord is clear. Now it's loud. Jonah is not only able to obey, he's, get this, he's willing to obey. We're always able Sometimes the willingness just isn't there. Jonah is now willing. Richard Phillips, the commentator, summarizes this well for us when he says, God's hand of chastisement in the lives of his children is guided by his purpose for our lives. God is never to blame for our sin, yet in his sovereign plan of grace, he uses even our folly, sin, and rebellion as occasions for achieving the designs of his grace. In this way, we realize that Jonah's rebellion had actually served the purposes of God. Having been changed by God's disciplining grace, Jonah is now ready to serve as an instrument fit for God's design and preaching the gospel. Now, loved ones, I have often said that evangelism, a failure, failure in evangelism, is a failure to love people. And I stand by that statement. That's a true statement. But as much as sharing the gospel with our unbelieving neighbor is an errand of mercy, even before that, long before that, 
It's a matter of obedience to the Word of God. We're not talking about cold duty here. We're talking about obedience that is motivated by the humbling realization that God would choose us and rescue us to be His people. We had to have last week's sermon before we got to this week's text. We need to be stunned and amazed that God would choose the likes of us to be His servants. Jonah had to learn this humility, didn't he? Jonah had to be cast into and delivered from the deep before he could open his mouth with a voice of thanksgiving and be a living sacrifice and fulfill his vows that God gave to him. John Owen the Puritan once said, that word can only come with power to our hearers when it has come with power to our own hearts. God often uses discipline and affliction to do that work, friends. God uses the school of adversity, the furnace of affliction, to impress His Word upon our hearts. Friends, so many of us, we we have been rescued not from the belly of a fish, but we have been rescued from the belly of, of death caused by our trespasses, caused by our sins against God. And because God is rich in mercy, friend, He made us alive together with Christ even when we were dead in our trespasses. And so through every trial and every discipline, listen, God is working to impress this reality on the hearts of His people. He he wants us to be so stirred and so provoked by His rescue so stirred up by the gospel that we become smaller and smaller there on the beachhead, smaller in our own estimation. But Jesus becomes larger and larger. John the Baptist had it right when he said, I must decrease so that he can increase. Friends, yes, evangelism... This is so hard to talk about. Evangelism is a matter of love for people. It is a matter of love for the lost, but that's not where it starts. It's first a matter of God's love for his people. His love is a pride-crushing love. His love is so strong that it casts out fear, the fear of sounding weird or strange to our friends. A love so secure that nothing, no rejection, no persecution can separate us from that love. God's love is about our acceptance with God before it moves us to do anything else in our lives. Loved ones, do you know this love today? Have you been humbled by this love? When I look at my my own life, I'm convinced that my unfaithfulness in the things that God has called me to do does not stem first from my lack of love for God. It comes from my own blindness, my own inability to see God's love for me in Jesus. This this is the fountainhead. That love is the fountainhead of my love for God. When you know that you're... listen. 
when you know that you're loved by another human, doesn't it give you confidence? When your spouse or your boyfriend or your girlfriend looks at you with that look that just says, man, I love you, it puts a, it puts a spring in your step. It gives you confidence. When your boss or your coworker or your family member compliments you and says, wow, what a great job, and they, they seem like they like you, it puts a spring in your step. When your kid says, I love you, Dad, you just walk out of the room and say, okay, this whole day was horrible, but that made it okay. I love you, Dad. Friends, how much more? The God of the universe? How much more the God of history, the God who transcends time and space and yet condescends in the person of his son Jesus so that he could be God with us forever? How much more should that love move us? Loved ones, have you looked at the cross lately? Have you wondered if God really could possibly love someone like you? Have you examined the cross lately? Have you seen the place where Jesus died and the wrath that He was satisfying? Have you comprehended what God did there for you because He loves you? If you're struggling, friends, with being an unfaithful servant, stop looking so much at your weakness and unfaithfulness and look away to the Lamb of God who is slain for your sins so that you could be everything He's called you to be. That's the basis for our spring in our step. That's the basis for our movement. His love shown to us in His Word, that's the move, what moves us out before anything else. That's what humbles us. So the faithful servant must first be humbled. Secondly, the faithful servant speaks hard truths. The very nature of Jonah's calling and the very nature of Jesus' calling to his disciples to go is it is to speak. In chapters 1 and 3, after the Lord told Jonah to arise and go to Nineveh, both times God commands Jonah, you see that word there, to call out. That word means to cry out, to proclaim, to teach, to preach. Now friends, this was no small task for our friend Jonah. This was no easy task for Jonah. Verse 3 tells us that Nineveh is literally a great city. The, trans, the, the literal translation there would be a great city to God. And, and we see this, this city, and, and, and to go to this city, and to travel this city, the writer tells us it would take three days to cross over the city on foot. We're told in chapter 4, uh, the city had a population of 120,000 people. In those days, in Jonah's day, any city with a population over 100,000 would be like a megacity. It'd be a massive city. It'd be like, it's like going to Tokyo today and walking that by foot. So here's this, this single little tiny man, still smelling of fish guts, called by God to go into this great metropolis of Assyria and to raise his voice, as chapters 1, verse 2, and 3, verse 2 say, to call out against it the message that I tell you. 
What does that say to us? That says to us that Jonah is not to go out there and tell everyone what he thinks. Jonah isn't to go out there and give his opinions on spiritual matters. It is to simply transfer the message that God commands him to speak without questioning it. We know from chapter 1, verse 2, that the reason Jonah was to call out against Nineveh is because, why? Their evil has come up before the Lord. Again, this is a city that's full of violence. Its inhabitants have lived in a culture of death. They, they derive certain pleasure from bringing harm to people and boasting in their evil. We can, we can probably rightly guess that this was one of the main reasons why Jonah fled from the Lord's presence in the first place. Jonah would be putting his life on the line to go to Nineveh. It would be like God calling you, little you, little me, to go to Skid Row in Los Angeles or or to go to West Englewood in Chicago at night and evangelize and call out against the people that are there. But you see, Jonah has this renewed boldness, doesn't he? Jonah has stared death in the face, friends. And he's experienced God's mighty deliverance. So he goes in the city, just starts walking it, raising his voice in verse 2, and he says, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now scholars are a bit divided on whether this was his entire message. In other words, was Jonah, is this Jonah's verbatim message that he just kept saying over and over again? Or was it a summary of the message? I tend to think it was a summary of the message. We'll look at that more next week. But for now, we're told just enough to learn something very important about the Lord's message to this evil city. What was Jonah to tell them? Jonah was to tell them that God had determined that a day of judgment was coming on these people for their wickedness. A day of judgment is coming. In our society, we don't like to talk about this kind of stuff. Friends, we are so determined to be liked and loved by everyone that we meet, we don't want to talk about judgment. And yet Jonah is commanded by God to go to the city and warn them. You see, friends, evil is self-destructive. Hatred, murder, violence, all bring about the breakdown and destruction of a society. We know this because it's happening in our society today. But we might not think much about the fact that the breakdown of a culture is in itself an expression of God's justice and judgment. Where do you find that in the Bible, Pastor? Well, Romans 1 is a great place to look. Romans 1 says that God has given over society to its sinful desires. That giving over is a form of its wrath, his wrath. Tim Keller in his book, Rediscovering Jonah, says God has created the world so that cruelty, greed, and exploitation have natural disintegrative consequences that are a manifestation of his anger toward evil. Societal breakdown is the inevitable end of a society that rejects God. And this is precisely what God sends Jonah to warn Nineveh about. Now, loved ones, this is, this is a helpful lesson for us. This is a needed lesson. 
So much of what we considered to be evangelism probably isn't evangelism at all. It could be pre-evangelism. It could be the beginning of an evangelistic conversation. But a lot of our evangelism is not evangelism. You see, when Jesus is presented as a sort of good option for the problems of life, not as a Savior who came to rescue people from God's judgment, that's an incomplete message. So in other words, people are made to see that their problems can be solved if you just come and accept Jesus. And there's almost this like apologetic, oh, would you please receive him today? Would you please come accept Jesus? Don't, don't turn away from him. Receive him. Find hope today. Find love today. And sometimes that type of messaging is good and it's needed. But it's not evangelism. Even in my conversation with John, when I heard that he was going through some hard things, it was my fear, my, my fear, or maybe my ignorance, but probably my fear, that kept me from graciously helping him see that the breakdown of his life is a consequence of the world that we live in and the inherited sin that he has in his life because of Adam. Only then can I really go to John and give him hope, give him the answer. Friends, if we, set, we present Jesus as a, as a solution to unbelievers, to their problems, and maybe throw sin in as an aside, we're not heralding the gospel. We're not preaching the message from God that leads to salvation. Yes, Jesus is the Savior of our whole being, including those parts of our lives that experience suffering and pain, but that's just a small part of the core message. And so what happens so often is people hear the partial message and then when the cares of this life come or the anxieties of this life come or persecution comes, they fall away or the word is choked because Jesus was only an add-on. Brothers and sisters, in our faithfulness to evangelize, we must warn We must warn, warn lovingly, warn winsomely, but warn clearly that we have all broken God's law, but that Jesus came to fulfill it for us. Martin Lloyd-Jones is one of my favorite preachers. He talks about this in one of his sermons. I want to quote him for you. He says, the essence of evangelism is to start by preaching the law, And it is because the law has not been preached that we have so much superficial evangelism. Evangelism must start with the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, the demands of the law, the punishment meted out by the law, and the eternal consequences of evil and wrongdoing. In other words, it's to warn. It is only the man who is brought to see his guilt in this way who flies to Christ for deliverance and redemption. Friends, I know your temptation because it's my temptation. It's very easy to justify our fear in teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade by telling ourselves that, hey, there's a lot of ways to show Jesus' love. 
And you know what? In one sense, that is true. Compassion, acts of mercy should mark the life of a a believer in this world. We tell our kids all the time, listen, when you go into your school, guys, you are the one of the few lights in that school. Stand out by being different. Stand out by being kind and loving and compassionate to the people around you. Be a light in the darkness. But loved ones, if I could just ask this to all of us, including myself, gently. What good is a shining light if our friends and our neighbors don't know its source? So that they can run, fly to Christ and get that light for themselves. We're not going to do it perfectly. Trust me. We're not going to do it perfectly. We're going to have grovel rocks in our mouth the entire time. But our evangelism will be faithful to the extent that we're willing to uphold Jesus as the Savior of sinners long before he's a problem solver. Long before he solves problems. We see that very example in Jesus' life when he sat with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. Every time he had compassion, he healed, he showed good love to them, but he always made sure they knew that they were sinners. They needed to know why he was going to be dying on the cross in short order. He did not chintz on the message. And that's the point. We cannot receive the grace of God unless we first see for ourselves how we've exchanged the life that God has given for a lie. You and I are faithful servants called to help people see this. So are we willing to share the hard truths? Are we willing to talk about uncomfortable things? We're willing. But for this, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. And that leads us to our final characteristic of the imperfect but faithful evangelist. Number three, the faithful servant is only a participant in God's work. If point two felt a little heavy for you, let me give you a little icing now, okay? Look at verse five. Read those simple, sweet words. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Now, if there's one thing that stands out about this book, the book of Jonah, it's it's brevity. As as Jonah goes, he simply works his way through the city. He calls out the short but potent warning, and he barely gets a day's journey in before Jonah starts to see a great change happening in the people all around the marketplace, all around the streets. Change is happening. The people believed God. It's the same word that uh, uh, Moses uses in Genesis chapter 12 and 15. Abraham believed God. This is, this is trust based on God's word that leads to action. These people are clearly touched by Jonah's warning. So they put on that sackcloth. Those are those mourning clothes. M-O-U-R-N, mourning clothes. They call for a fast. That's a sign of their remorse. And this had to shock this old boy. This had to be a shock to Jonah. These are the ruthless Ninevites. Surely this response can't be real, he must thought. Are these people really cut to the heart by this message? That's why Jonah scurries up later on in the story to wait and see what happens to the city. 
can't believe it. But for now, why is this happening? That's the question. You see, friends, Jonah is not the first representative of the God of Israel to arrive in Nineveh. Long before the word of the Lord came to them through him, the Lord of the word came to them by his Holy Spirit. Jonah is the backup team. Jonah is second to arrive. Jonah is just a mouth. Jonah is just a body, a channel through which the Spirit works. He's just a willing vessel, a cracked one at that. And so are we. This reminds me of a story, a short story that uh, Charles Spurgeon was going to be preaching one night in this large auditorium. And remember in those days, in the 1800s, there was no electricity. So he was there one day testing the acoustics that morning, testing the acoustics out of the auditorium. And, and he stood up behind the pulpit and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Check, checking out the acoustics. And little did he know that in the hallway nearby was a janitor. And that janitor heard him say those words. And that janitor fell to his knees and repented of his sin and trusted in Christ. Why? Why? Because the word of the Lord already arrived there with that man before Charles Spurgeon ever said a thing. Charles Spurgeon's just a participant. And, and I love how few words Jonah speaks, right? Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be, Nineveh will be overthrown. Five words in the Hebrew. But that's all that God needed. Jonah needed to warn them, and embedded in that warning is a chance to repent. But God did all the work. Those people believed God because the Spirit of God was already at work in them, preparing the soil of their hearts to receive Jonah's brief message, and revival broke out. Sinclair Ferguson makes the point that so many individual conversions happen in this way. He says, he says, sentences are all God needs when his children have the touch of the Spirit in their lives. All God needs is a few words, a few sloppy sentences that contain simple gospel truth, and the Holy Spirit does the rest. The Lord has proven that to us, by the way, time and time again with this church plan. When, when the Bean family and my family moved to Wilmington, I remember a wise man told us, he said, listen to me, when you go to Wilmington, don't go there thinking that you are at salvation. Don't go there thinking that you are Jesus. Long before you ever arrive, listen, long before you ever step foot in that town, the river of the gospel has been flowing in that city. And if God so chooses to have mercy on you, he will let you dip your toe in that river and participate in the work that he's already doing. But the gospel is already there. You're not its savior. And beloved, I can say with certainty, with 100% certainty, that Grace City Church still exists today because that river has been carrying us along. It's certainly not us. It's certainly not you. We don't control it. Not a single one of us here are responsible for a single life being changed in this town. We are second to arrive. This is all the Lord's work. Loved ones, is that a, not a most freeing thought to take with you as you go out into your week this week? 
A faithful servant is only a participant, a secondary cause, the backup team, the bench. It has been called to speak hard truths in the power of the Spirit, truths that have already humbled our hearts. Like a farmer, all we're doing is scattering, all we're doing is throwing, and we're waiting to see what God does with that seed. Proclamation belongs to us. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So what about us? Can you resonate? Are you an imperfect but maybe faithful servant? Again, if we're, if we're honest, evangelism, hard things for the Lord are areas that we all fall short in. If that's you, and I'm guaranteeing you that it's me, this story has one final encouragement to give us before we pray. Look at verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. After he said no. After he disobeyed. After he ran. After pagans got on their knees before he ever, ever would ever think to pray. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And he said, arise and go. Loved ones, aren't you grateful that we serve the God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances and a hundred chances? Salvation belongs to the Lord. And that means ours does too. And that perfect life and sacrificial death of Jesus for us is the proof that God will not give up on his imperfect but faithful servants. In fact, in fact, it's the unerring faithfulness of the Lord Jesus on our behalf that ensures that we will remain faithful. Have you ever thought about the fact that salvation is still being accomplished because Jesus right now sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for you and me. At the right hand of the Father, when the Father looks at us, he sees his Son before he sees us. He looks through those nail holes in his hand before he looks at us. It's all the proof that we need to arise and to go out again. He makes us faithful. He makes us faithful. We are not called to go and bear fruit in the sense that we can produce fruit. We're just to be faithful. He produces the fruit. But we need to be, by the Spirit, by grace, is faithful. Your kids need your faithfulness. Your spouse needs your faithfulness. Your boss needs your faithfulness. Your church needs your faithfulness. Your neighbor needs your faithfulness. Amen.